From the north, citizens of Earth, welcome. Listen, let me take you on a journey to a valley far away into the deep north, at the Norwegian countryside. But it isn't in the pristine north, nor by the magnificent fjords in the west. It is in fact an unremarkable place of scrubby, low-lying hills, a former mining centre that has slipped into depression and depopulation. It is utterly unexceptional, except for one thing, incredible, strange and unexplained lights. According to the residents, mysterious glowing orbs hover over the water and recede when approached, sometimes called the will-o'-the-wisps. Airy shapes of lights appear seemingly from out of nowhere, moving slowly or at incredible speed, separating and reforming, winking in and out, pulsating or color-changing, or simply switch on for a moment and vanish and sometimes even go invisible, but for special cameras and indirect manifestations. Word of this phenomena was a public secret among the tight-knit insular community until December 81, when a huge flap started, and the lights shone brighter, more frequent, so outsiders took notice, and the press descended. Welcome to Hestal a beautiful rural spot which for decades has attracted great scientists and devoted spectators from across the world. It is a unique place for two reasons. Firstly, the phenomena are so multifaceted, albeit all of them similar to what you find reported from all over the globe, but here they are all crammed together into one small spot. Secondly, It is perhaps the longest monitored and best documented scene of UFOs in the world, at least as far as open, public, civilian, white science concerns. Though the frequency of their appearances varies, on average they are observed about 25 times a year, which may indicate a far greater activity considering the few potential witnesses. The entire area only has a population of about 100 to 150 souls. However, between 81 and 84, residents became concerned and alarmed about the intense increased activities, thousands of observations in this period, estimated to about 20 reports a week, and I remind you, this is just what is observed. The good news is that early in this period, a sincere scientist visited, out of curiosity, due to all the fuss, What he experienced led to what has now become a 40-year and counting scientific study of this mystery, which isn't sufficiently described by UFO nor lights. However, the en vogue term UAP actually nails it. It is unknown, it is aerial, and it is a phenomenon going far beyond objects. Hence the Hestal phenomena. And our guest tonight is this scientist, who will help us examine what we know so far. And here's a preview of what's to come. 
if you can imagine, they were sitting in their houses and sometimes a big, huge light moving outside their window, even sometimes illuminated the room inside, moving slowly in the valley, you know, not many houses up there, a very long distance between houses. You see, it's dark out there, and then this huge light coming so close to their houses sometimes. If you measure something on radar, doesn't that mean that uh, it is physical, that it's an object? Or can immaterial uh, energy also be? Uh, immaterial can also be, but uh, it depends on how strong the reflection on you can see on the radar screen. We got some recordings on the radar, which was a very strong reflection. I would say as strong as you will get from a solid object. But uh, sometimes we saw reflection from the light moving, light source, the unknown light source. But uh, sometimes also we got reflection from nothing or we couldn't see anything. Uh, we, we <laughs> so it was some immaterial, but it was strong as it was. And, and, but we managed yeah, to... Yeah, yeah, wait a minute. If you couldn't perceive it with your five senses... But there's still something there. That means that the frequency is so extremely high that it's beyond uh, the limit of, of uh, vision. That's, that's incredible. We are going into some data from, from yeah. uh, the field work now. Mm -hmm. We had also in period some feeling that you are out in a boat in the ocean. Something influenced your head. So wow. even if you're standing out in the mountainside, yeah. uh, standing still not in a boat, you feel as you are in the boat, waving back and forth in the waves. Wow. Uh, and many of those who were standing there had the same feeling. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have studied what this could be, what could make us feel like that. We have also measured some really strange happening. We used a laser, a very weak laser, mm -hmm. uh, because, well, and pointed towards uh, flashing light. Uh, we didn't use any strong laser, so it wasn't dangerous. It's anyway uh, weak laser. In type of really? laser you play with cats, that kind of laser? Yes, a laser which now is used for uh, pointing uh, devices. Yeah. Uh, very weak, uh, much weaker in that one, red one. We pointed that to a flashing light. The reason why we did that test at all was that people had... Uh, said that uh, when uh, they use a strong spotlight, for instance, from a car pointing mm. to this uh, light, it disappears. So we, uh, instead of um, bringing a big spotlight, <laughs> mm -hmm. we used a smaller laser, which was much easier to handle. So it's more easy to say you hit it or outside of it. Uh, but what happened? It changed the flashing frequency when we pointed the laser beam to, towards it and uh, was surprised. We would expect as it to disappear, which people told us. No, it did change the flashing frequency. Uh, you mean if they changed the frequency on the, on the laser? You know, uh, if you can imagine, it was a light who wasn't steady. It was flashing yeah. on and on, ah. on, on. And the frequency become doubled when we pointed the laser. Wow. So some people may interpret that as communication. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> absolutely. 
The third type is uh, several lights together. Uh, and these lights, spots of light, seems to be connected to something. So when uh, several lights, you can imagine, mm-hmm. on, on the on the sky or uh, towards the hillside or wherever, mm-hmm. uh, when these are moving, they are moving all together. So as if they are connected to something. And this something has been seen sometimes when this type of light hasn't been, when it hasn't been completely dark outside. And they say it's normally connected to a dark object. Or so you might think, but no, we're talking hard data here. In a research project that has more or less gone under the radar of public knowledge, but now that the phenomenon has been acknowledged as genuinely unknown and aerial, in the mainstream, and by public representatives, took them only 70 years, it is high time to bring Project Hastal to the global attention it deserves. And straight from Mr. Hastal's own mouth, Erling Petter Strand. His interest in this began already as a young student when a classical saucer-shaped disc with three legs that seemingly randomly descended above him. He would have several paranormal experiences during his life. Being a nuts and bolts type, he longed for a way to understand this in scientifically measurable ways. He studied physical electronic and telecommunication between 77 and 81 at NTNU, where he got his Master of Science in Engineering. Between 81 and 85, Strand was both a research engineer at Alcatel as well as a research fellow at Standard Telefon og Kabelfabrik, where his work field was within fiber optical communication. Between 85 and 88, he was hardware manager for EDAS Målesystemer, developing microprocessor-based automatic measurement stations and systems. Ever since 88, he has been a lecturer at Østfold University College, where he today is assistant professor at Department of Computer Science and Communication, where his research groups are atmosphere physics and cyber-physical systems, and where he has managed to integrate the Hasdal phenomena into the faculty as a clean field of study, even arranging science camps as fieldwork for his students. Arling Strand has been teaching subjects like data communication, data techniques, microprocessor techniques, physics, chemistry, and analog techniques. And for many years been in charge of the bachelor projects. His hard work and good talent was recognized by the university when he in 13 received the communicator prize. Between 7 and 13 he was European representative for Society of Scientific Exploration arranging many of its European conferences. This network of scholars and scientists had UFOs among their field of scrutiny in a time when featuring only that very word itself in itself automatically led any kind of study to be rejected within academia. For Erling, this went back already to 83 after he had witnessed the UAP activity in Hastal and co-founded Project Hastal, of which he has been manager for about 40 years and counting. Among their measurements and monitoring equipment is magnetometers, radars and color cameras. Since its inauguration, the station has recorded many pictures and videos of these luminous phenomena. 
He has spoken at innumerable conferences and conventions this year at the Ufology World Congress in Barcelona. And obviously has been featured in all sorts of mainstream media, too many to mention here, as well as participated in all sorts of TV, radio and podcast programs. Some uh, documentaries worth uh, mentioning is The Proof is Out There, You for Europe, The Untold Stories, The Day Before Disclosure, and The Portal, The Hestal Light Phenomenon. And indeed, some think that this weird place Hestal has to be some kind of portal. Welcome to Forum Borealis, Aling. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be invited and to be here. And a pleasure to have you. You know, we started this podcast back in 2015. And my intention was always to cover uh, not just international and, and especially American stuff, because half of our listeners are Americans, but also to flaunt Norwegians who, for one reason or another, deserve, you know, a broader scene. And uh, Hastalites, which we're soon going to tell you, listeners, what is, has always been on my mind. I always wanted to cover this because it's, I, I find it uniquely Norwegian. <laughs> and here we are after, what, eight years? <laughs> Finally. That's, that's good. <laughs> yeah. So, Erling, you're like Mr. Hastal man. You're the go-to man. Uh, and you have been involved for a very, very long time. Well. Um, so, I think uh, we might as well just start with you informing us about this phenomenon. How far back does it go? I know there's been Norwegian folklore for a very long time. But uh, in documented history, how far do we know about this phenomenon? Well, in the beginning, or there's old stories, there are very little written material. I think it's one or two or maybe three from the start when it, when we came into, when it really started back in 1981. Mm. So very little, although we have talked with uh, old people up there and uh, they uh, tell us about their stories, what they'd seen when I was young, and so on. So I would guess, based on that, uh, there has been activity up in that valley for a very long time. Could we guess hmm. hundreds of years? Or? It will be just a speculation. So hmm. I, I cannot say any number. Uh, but uh, I think the first written... When there was something written at all, uh, it was back in 1800 or something. But uh, of course, this is a small community. The written material I mentioned is uh, local history books. You know, you have those uh, people interested in history and they write down and now and then they give up the history from the district. Mm. And in one of those old, <laughs> they write something yeah, about uh, which could be this light, you know. Uh -huh. There was no, not uh, a strange light. It was, it was uh, what we um, think is description of similar light as it is today. Mm. Mm. 
But uh, I remember uh, back in the day there was uh, like a f- you know you know this f- uh, folklore about the Seljord <laughs> monster. Yeah. We yeah. have folks. We have uh, our own Loch Ness monster in Norway. It's called Seljord monster. And I remember back in the eighties they were talking about Hastal in the same vein. Like oh, we have many strange phenomena. We have the UFOs in Hastal. We have the monster in Seljord. So at least it, it it was a consciousness among people many decades ago that this was a traditional phenomenon. And is this when people started to be interested to explore it? I think the interest of uh, exploring it was uh, when the huge flap started back in December 1981, when uh, the appearances, uh, the happenings, uh, was so awful, it could be at the most uh, we uh, had four and uh, twenty observation a week at the most, which we have written. So it was a huge because well, this valley is very small; it's about ten miles long and uh, <laughs> small, <laughs> not so wide either. And at that time in. 1980s, it was 200 people living there. Now it's uh, about 100. So very, very small valley. And if you think of such a small area, totally, uh, with so many sightings, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's much, that's much. And it uh, was so many so that uh, people had to start talking about it. The local inhabitants of in the beginning they didn't say anything to anyone. They just saw a strange light, but you don't talk about such to other people. Yeah, outsiders, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but um, the intent, the the amount of observation becomes of so big, so they started to talk about it, and. Uh, Soon after, the newspaper heard about it and so on. They wrote about it. and Yeah, but they, they, I remember they ridiculed it a lot. In the beginning, yes. Yeah. Mm. And I guess the locals, do you think they were afraid? Did they think there was, were they scared of this or were they just used to it? And always oh, just the weird lights no, put they on the were, dinner. In the beginning, they were not used to it because... Uh, you know, the old stories we have heard from old people up there afterwards. It was not any story they talked about. So they, they were quite new for most of them up there, mm-hmm. except those old people who had seen it now. And also some other people had seen it, but uh, it was not so much. So they talked about it. Okay, uh, and and we're talking we're talking strictly Hastal. It's it's not spilling over to close municipal passes uh, close to the area. Well, after we have started to study it, uh, it uh, shows to also be in uh, nearby districts. Although the highest intensity seems to be in that small valley Hastal, hmm. so it's not. Uh, it's not only in Hestown, but uh, most of it is uh, happening in that valley. And and what is other places is is close proximity, right? 
Yes, very close to it. It's about uh, the nearest village is about, uh, well, 10, 15 kilometers away. And uh, and people living in that village, uh, Ålen is the name of the village, has uh, always uh, seen it and they have reported it. So we know about it. Well, you know, <clears throat> scientists aren't exactly the first to catch up on stuff like this. So I'm assuming, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm assuming that the first professional interest in this was from ufologists. Well, yes, I was one of those who uh, involved myself very early. And that was uh, back in early 1980. Well, I was up there and saw it for myself in 1982. Oh, wow. Uh, and I was so impressed that, uh, and at that time, I was working as a research fellow uh, in Oslo. And uh, I was so curious, you know, <laughs> every uh, researcher or scientist is curious of my nature. So I was curious. And, uh, yeah, but that just means you're a real scientist because there's a lot of people who, you know, if I can't explain it or if it's not acknowledged, it doesn't exist, right? So kudos to you. But I guess you were so impressed that you didn't have any choice. <laughs> no, you can say that. That's uh, correct. Uh, I was so curious. So, uh, and uh, we gathered some friends uh, of mine and we decided to start a project. But in the beginning, when the newspaper wrote about it and the mm-hmm. television came and um, made recordings of all the people coming to the location, because, well, when the newspaper started to write about it, people wanted to see it for themselves. So they went up to that small valley and looked, staying out in the, in the evening, nighttime, looking for the light and went home maybe in the middle of the night or something. So, uh, and many of those people attending that valley did see it for themselves. So this was spread out. (laughs) So more and more people came to that uh, valley. And uh, well, the news, the television program, uh, television news and television shows, uh, they went also up there to mainly to film the people coming. Mm. Uh, not, but <laughs> the funny thing is on one occasion, uh, one of the TV channels, they saw it themselves when they were up there. And that was ah. quite funny. Did they, did they get it on film? Yes. Huh. So then they, then they changed, probably changed the approach. They didn't like yes. anymore look at it as a ridiculous curiosity. Then I'm assuming they reported on it more seriously or. Yes, that, that is correct. They changed their attitude in a way. So uh, <laughs> the outcome of the program was uh, much better in a way than it uh, could have been. Right, right. Well, uh, but but it's true also that you for Norge involved themselves, isn't it? Because I remember to have read about it in some of the magazines once? Well, at that time I was part of UFO Norway uh, mm. and uh, we, uh, I and some friends came together uh, both from UFO Norway, UFO Sweden and Forening for Psychobiophysics mm. and some others 
came together to discuss what could be done. You know, this was in 1983. And then this happening with this high intensity, the high number uh, of appearances uh, had gone on for uh, one and a half year already. Mm -hmm. And everyone talked about why doesn't that university do something? Why doesn't that uh, research facility do something? Everyone asking openly, why doesn't they do something? It's happening. We want to find an answer. I'm just assuming money has a lot to do with it. Yes, of course. <laughs> yes, money. And at that time, it was called UFO. And uh, no scientist should ever involve themselves in such phenomena, or we call it phenomena now, mm. UFO, because they could be ridiculed themselves, as all the people up there was ridiculed in the press. Yeah, yeah it's, a car- it's a career killer, but somehow you seem to have managed to maneuver the, that minefield. Well, yes, <laughs> uh, I, uh, I put my head out on I'm a, I'm a type who doesn't care. As long as I know the truth, the truth that is happening, and uh, why should you hide then? Uh, if someone wanted to be, uh, write to say bad things about me, <laughs> I don't care. Hmm, that's great. Before we go into the technical stuff, uh, I just want to, uh, uh, it makes me curious, did you meet a lot of resistance and challenges from the academic field? Yes. In the beginning? Yes. Some, not uh, not much, not more than I could uh, withstand. Uh, it was, uh, but some was, some was negative, of course. But uh, I think uh, the reason why we, we wasn't so much attacked at all was that we we decided to do something scientifically, mm-hmm. uh, do it in a scientific manner, get the instrument readings, study the results before any conclusion was done. All this scientific way of doing it. We decided we should do it in this way. Uh, I think uh, many, I've seen uh, also many people who are very interested in UFO, or many people generally, has a very tendency to uh, take go to a conclusion uh, very fast. Or they say it may be that and that uh, with too little uh, base background to back it up. It maybe they they believe it uh, in a way, and they it's not that way. Uh, scientists should work, uh, should get the scientific data before um, state any and the conclusion of what it can be. Uh, and we decided to do it in that manner. And uh, when the scientists, which we uh, which we discussed this with, we talked about that, and they, they accepted that, of course, because that was their normal way of uh, doing mm. job. Mm. Yeah, and back, at least in the 80s, the organized debunkers weren't, it wasn't like a huge movement like it became later, because uh, they... You you might argue, well, we, we need them because they are a good balance to the true believers, but very often they can quench cases 
before they even get off. And uh, so I guess curiosity was more welcome back in the day. But there's always the question of funding. I wonder, what is the first you decided to do to study it? And how how did you finance it? Well, uh, <laughs> um, the first we decided to do is to make a research plan. Well, we had this meeting back in uh, June 1983, where we decided to start uh, what we call Project Heston uh, and get uh, this research scientifically. After we have decided that, we made a plan. We, we involved as man, many scientists as we could, uh, those who were interested and then those who who uh, dared to give us uh, their support. So we had a good contact, both with scientists in Norway uh, and also some abroad. And also the military, Norwegian military, was also interested in this topic. Wow. Uh, so uh, we had a good uh, dialogue with uh, those people. We had a lot of meetings and, of course, they were professional scientists and um, and uh, investigators and in the military, you know. Um, so uh, that we learned a lot of them, and uh, that helped us. Did you lot. did you get a sense that they they had done this before, that they had expertise? Well, uh, not on uh, the UFO topic. I got not uh, any impression of that. Okay. Uh, but, uh, well, in the beginning, it was called UFO. Everyone talked about UFO. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that is uh, not a good word. Uh, and the scientists, when they hear the word UFO, they step back normally. That's because... right, that's right. That's why the American military is now calling it UAP. Yes, that's right. Mm -hmm. And we changed the name to Heston Phenomena. Mm. Because, well, when we had our first meetings with the scientists and the military and so on, we, we mentioned, uh, uh, we talked about the UFO, and we saw on their faces that they were skeptical. <laughs> of course, should we do anything with the UFO? And I understand very, I, I had to explain, though, what we meant by the word UFO. It's mm. a unidentified flying object, which is still unknown. So I uh, have to underline the word U, the, the letter U, unknown. Uh, then they, uh, they thought it was okay. But uh, I soon realized that I haven't hadn't the opportunity to meet every scientist face to face and explain for them what mm. we meant by the word UFO. So we decided to change the name to uh, what we call the Heston phenomena. And we started to use that name of the phenomena more and more. And then we, we I felt that uh, it wasn't so much resistance. It was yeah. more. It accepted. removes, yeah, it removes the stigma. But uh, I'm, I'm very curious. I never knew about the military's interest. How did they justify, explain their interest to you guys? Uh, well, uh, they was uh, quite open. I think they have uh, experienced themselves. 
and uh, in Norway, yeah, in Norway and on radar, for instance, and so mm -hmm. they they uh, had uh, many happenings or or uh, recordings which they couldn't explain, and I was curious, uh, uh, yeah. and I was very glad I got the impression of that uh, someone wanted to do something scientifically which could maybe explain some of their mysteries as well yeah yeah i'm just surprised that they themselves didn't try to it's not as if there's no scientists working for the military everybody has always is always you know associating the project hastal with a civilian enterprise so uh, <clears throat> I'm very surprised that the military, because now I understand why military would be interested. Now that the American military is interested, every military is interested. <laughs> and military, I'm assuming their basic worry would be, could it be something hostile? Because it's their job to defend, right? So hostility is probably number one. But I'm guessing number two is also, and we're going to talk more about that later in the show, but I can already disclose that energy source is on the radar of the researchers and people involved in this. And that, I'm assuming, also would be interested for the military. Uh, yeah. But you, you are flaunting the, like, the curiosity thing, which I'm surprised because I, I never regarded military as very curious and truth-seeking. <laughs> That's not their job. But maybe individually they were, the people who, who were involved. Because as a human being, of course, we have, everybody has you know, yes. sentiments. So. yes. Yes, uh, that's true, and uh, I think uh, there's individuality. Um, many people in the military, in the research facilities, is interested in the unknown, uh, as many people. And, uh, and of course, when they also see it on the radar screen, that's uh, and their their job is to defend. So, so they, they, they have to if uh, if uh, people generally was feeling some threat of this phenomena, mm. and that could of course put a lot of pressure on the military. Yeah, in the eighties, you, you know, or it could be unknown Russian Soviet weapons, right? It could be like that. That kind of thinking was still very strong. Yes, but the description uh, the military gave for for me about what the Navy experience uh, was not in uh, in uh, was not possible to think of this as uh, Russian or something. It was mm. it was very unknown. Okay, interesting. Yeah, you mentioned uh, the finance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we didn't have much money when we started the field work. Okay, so most of us uh, worked for free. We used our free time. You were in job in the daytime and used our free time in uh, working with this. Uh, so uh, in that sense, it didn't cost any money. Our mm -hmm. planning and so very little anyway. And uh, those who took part in the first field work back in 1984, we couldn't give them any money. They had to pay everything themselves, the petrol for the driving, the food, everything. We didn't pay them anything, hmm. but they, all of them were so curious. It was a, such a big happening. So they... We got uh, a lot of people due to that. Even we had uh, in the first field work uh, up to 40 people present. 
Wow. Uh, all... <laughs> what about equipment? Isn't that equipment? Awesome? We got we got some few little support from military, uh, so we had some money, mm. uh, so we didn't need to pay everything our from our own pocket. Although some of we had to pay some, of course, from our own pocket, mm. but we got uh, a little little support. Uh, even if the money wasn't very much, it gave us a very good good uh, feeling that they really wanted us to do something, mm. and that was good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a, a kind of a support. But uh, back in the eighties, the equipment must have been very analog; couldn't have been very advanced. What did you do? What did you use? And what did you try to do with what you had? Yes, we we used analog. <laughs> everything was analog instruments, mm. analog cameras. Everything was analog. Uh, even the communication. There was no mobile phone. Use walkie-talkie. Those <laughs> heard of that. And uh, and uh, if you need to ring a phone call, we have to go to the nearest house and borrow their their <laughs> phone <laughs> so it was not uh, as it is today but we managed it was possible so well were the locals were they open and positive or? yes that they helped us also a lot because they were so positive that mm. someone wanted to give maybe maybe give them an answer or oh, that was their highest uh, goal to find out what it is if you can imagine they were sitting in their houses and sometimes a big huge light moving outside their window even sometimes uh, illuminated the, the room inside wow. moving slowly in the valley you know not many houses up there a very long distance between houses you see it's dark out there and then this huge light coming so close to their houses sometimes of course they were curious they was wondering some was a little bit afraid also in the beginning not to, and uh, and when people come and want to do a real uh, scientific work to find out give them some answer I was very glad so they helped us a lot the local inhabitants we we was really really welcome up there mm. so let's say you, you you sit in a cabin or a house up there and it's the dark uh, season are we talking like blinding dazzling lights is it that strong <clears throat> my first observation up there back in 1982 before this field work I hadn't, uh, I had imagined maybe I'm lucky to see a light uh, towards the, the hillside or something, which I expected to be quite not so strong at all. But mm. what surprised me was how strong it was. If you can imagine a car, if you can imagine a car one kilometers away, maybe or maybe less with a spotlight directly towards you. Mm. That that's strong, uh, so and that uh, light was moving in the air, 
going down, close to the ground, up again, and so on, continue for more than one and a half hour. So it was very strong. And um, as I mentioned also, could illuminate inside the houses. Uh, it can illuminate the ground beneath uh, the, the light when it's close enough to, to the ground, though. But... Um, uh, well, uh, so it, the impression of the, my first impression or surprise, maybe I should say, mm-hmm. is that it was so, so strong in intensity. Yeah, because if you can compare it to car lights in the dark season, that can be a blinding, actually. Um, yes, yes. Only that the car lights doesn't move like that. So, uh, yes. But, uh, okay, so this is fascinating. Now, okay, so you, you guys are there. You have some local support, some official support, and you start recording it. That's what you're doing, right? You're filming. Yeah. Uh, are you just using cameras or are you using some fancy measuring? Uh, In the beginning, when the first field work up out there, we had cameras, ordinary cameras, analog cameras to uh, film you had to develop and so on. So we had uh, many cameras and film cameras also. Uh, that was the first thing. But when we had the field work, we managed to get uh, other instruments, for instance, the radar, uh, and we could have a magnetometer who can measure the every change in the earth magnetic field or the measure the intensity of the earth magnetic field and, and every changes there and there, uh, such so an old uh, instruments. We had a Geiger counter and we have a binocular who could look into the infrared. Uh, yeah, area. I was going to ask about that. And UV, did you also look into UV? Uh, not in the beginning. Because it was hard to find any equipment who could do that in that uh, in that beginning of the eighties. So, uh, yeah, yeah. but uh, infrared was uh, possible to to get, and we have spectrum analyzer as well, which measure any electromagnetic radiation, for instance, radio or television signals, and also other things. The reason why we we brought that was that we have heard that uh, when these uh, these uh, sightings uh, occur, it's very often that there is uh, some noise on the television, and uh, with such an apparatus, uh, such an instrument, a spectrum analyzer, it's possible to see if there is any noise in the electromagnetic spectrum. Hmm. So. That was also one instrument we were using. And uh, maybe the most uh, simple or most important uh, is uh, optical grating. That's uh, something, a grating which you could put in front of the lens of the camera or you you fasten it to the lens. Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, the light, if you have a white light, for instance, coming, you take a picture of a white light uh, with this camera, with this grating in front, you could it would be possible to see which color this light consists of. For instance, a white light uh, consists of all the natural colors, yes. from uh, from blue or violet to to, to red. And uh, with the grating in front of the camera, uh, that split up the different colors which uh, cons- this light consists of. 
And by, with analyzing such an optical spectrum, the colors of the light, the real colors of the light, if you study this uh, on the film, though, it uh, could be possible to find out if there is any gas uh, glowing uh, or or if there is any solid object glowing and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, so we can tell much uh, about the source of the light by using a grating, grating in front of the camera. So it sounds like you actually had a rather uh, competent equipment very early on. And uh, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you uh, what results you got from these different kinds of measures. I'll, I'll just muse first and say that interference with television, that's interesting because that's classical in all UFO uh, cases. Now, let, let's say a UFO should be an advanced spaceship, which is what most people associate it to be. Now, if it's an exotic t technology, obviously it would have the same effect as I mean, it's, if it's electromagnetic, right? So, so that in itself doesn't mean anything. But it's still interesting that it's if it's not a, a kind of a spaceship that it still interferes with the frequencies of TV. I don't know if it also interferes with radio. Did it also interfere there? Well, we don't have so many reports from uh, Heston telling about such interferences. The only thing is on television. Very few, though. So we don't have so much of such uh, up there. But we did measure something with the instruments, which was strange. But uh, what we did measure was not exactly where the television signal was taking place. Mm -hmm. So what we did measure wouldn't influence on the television signal uh, or radio signal. But, but wait a minute, if you measure something on radar, doesn't that mean that uh, it is physical, that it's an object? Or can immaterial uh, energy also be? Uh, immaterial can also be, but uh, it depends on how strong the reflection on you can see on the radar screen. Uh, we use an radar which are used on both uh, so it requires, uh, but it was strong, so it could detect uh, small things. We got some recordings on the radar, which was a very strong reflection. I would say as strong as you will get from a solid object. But uh, we sometimes, well, sometimes we saw reflection from the light moving light source, the unknown light source. But uh, sometimes also we got reflection from nothing or we couldn't see anything. Uh, we, we <laughs> So it was some immaterial, but it was strong as it was. And, and, but we managed yeah, to... Yeah, yeah, wait a minute. If you couldn't perceive it with your five senses, but there's still something there, that means that the frequency is so extremely high that it's beyond uh, the limit of of uh, vision that's that's incredible yes well that's uh, that's possibility but the, the radar which they can also measure for instance uh, if you have a local area with uh, which is very ionized well 
plus and minus and a small area, much plus there and a meter between. It's a much minus <laughs> like in a battery, high voltage. If that's the case, if you have something like that in the air, that's strange itself. But uh, that may give a strong reflection on the radar screen. Uh-huh. Okay, have, a false we, positive. We have discussed um, our findings with radar experts in the military, and they, and they told us that. And they said also that uh, this INS, plus or minus, as I mentioned, in a small area, much plus there and one meter, much minus, that was a thing which uh, they thought of could, could have been much to make such a strong reflection on the radar screen. For instance, raindrops do also uh, reflect on, on the radar screen. So you know you have this oh. those ra- radar from the from the weather <laughs> weather and they can detect the rain you know mm. and, uh, so radar can detect rain too but yeah but the raindrops after all are physical entities yes but they are not the reflection is normally not as strong as uh, the one we got. Before I inquire more about the lights and what you have measured, etc., let's stick a little more to history. So this is the early days. Now, as you get, as you actually get to record actual phenomenon, I'm assuming the press and also universities, etc., gradually were changing their attitude and getting more interested and more positive. Uh, well, the press uh, did not change uh, their attitude so dramatically. Before I involved uh, scientists, or we involved scientists taking part in an open conference in Hestown, that uh, was a make- breakthrough. Even though we had uh, scientific data, we had uh, measurement from the phenomena, so we could say it's happening in Hestown. We had several pictures, we have optical spectrum, we had a lot. Mm. But uh, the press needed something more. And what they needed was uh, that scientists, well-established scientists, could say that it is really something going out there and there is a real physical phenomena. And that happened uh, back in 1994, uh, 10 years after uh, when I started the project again. Uh, I invited, I had uh, been to different scientific conferences from 1984 to 1993 uh, and uh, got to know uh, several scientists from all over the world, uh, physicists and so on. So, uh, dis- any, any well well known people who backed yes. it, who supported yes. it? Yes, yes. Are you allowed to mention the names, or are they afraid to be yes. associated? Yes, uh, well well known for uh, for those who are in the topic. For instance, plasma physicist Boris Smirnov from uh, from Russia, and you have Edward Manikin from from also from Russia, who is uh, also in a specific field. So maybe they are not well-known for ordinary people. They are not people who are out in the press and so on, mm. but in the scientific community, 
and they was very well known. So I managed to get them to this uh, conference in, uh, we call it a workshop in Hestal. Um, and uh, when the press or, or when, the, when people at the universities in Norway heard about who is coming to the conference, mm. I got uh, several, many, many uh, attendances from uh, Norwegian scientists, because uh, the one who, Boris Mirnov, for instance, had never been to Norway before. Mm. He was, (laughs) but anyway, he was a great scientist. Mm. And many Norwegian uh, scientists who is in his field hadn't met him personally. Now they have an opportunity to meet him personally Mm. uh, in in. uh, So you think that attracted some? (laughs) Yes, that did something. And when the Mm. press understood who is coming and who is taking this seriously. It's not, uh, it was a big scientist. Mm. And then that changed the attitude on the press. Uh, So that was very good, very good. Yeah. No, I'm not surprised that Russian scientists found it interesting because uh, they've had their own scientific tradition and uh, they've had other kind of, they haven't shared so much the Western attitude to these things. I mean, they have had many brilliant scientists who have not been afraid to go to original and weird places. Korsirev comes to mind, <laughs> yep. who's, who launched the torsion physics model, etc. So, so this is interesting. So this was in 94, and uh, you started to get good press. Did you get more funding too? What did the local universities say? Well, the the funding we have not got any big funding. It's very difficult to get uh, funding because well, this is unknown. This is uh, I couldn't uh, say that when we find a solution or if we find a solution, mm. we couldn't be sure of that either because mm. it was so strange. So we couldn't promise any solution, but uh, we could promise uh, scientific data anyway. It's very difficult to get funding. You have to have good arguments. I managed to get some little money from my university college uh, when I uh, I involving my students, you know, using this in in my in their study. And uh, if I do that, uh, they saw that uh, this could be good for our students, and I got some money for this. And also, what helped. Uh, was that I involved myself. I got contact with different scientists uh, abroad, scientific community, uh, and so on. That also made it a little bit more easy to get a little bit funding, yeah. but uh, very little, uh, totally. Yeah. But maybe I should just say now that, um, yeah. well, it's a long story. <laughs> I'm jumping to... We have time. <laughs> you know, we put up the blue box and automatic field station. You know, I was talking about 1984 yeah. and uh, 1985. Due to the fact that we got so much results in 1984 on our field work, we decided to go for another field work in 1985. Uh, but uh, sadly, it was only one good observation in 85. So it's was impression that it had gone due to the fact it was more than 50 the first uh, for 1984. 
but so we we put the, uh, the project to a long, very low level. We just talked with journalists. We just talked with them. We went to conferences and so on. Yeah, so, yeah. You went. You went twenty-four hours monitoring it then, right? No. Mm. Uh, so it happened that I in nineteen ninety-three. That was um, eight years after our second fieldwork. We had a fieldwork in 1984 and 85. And in 1993, the people in Hestal wanted to know what had happened after we were up there mm. and made this uh, measurement. Mm. So I was invited to Hestal to talk with uh, uh, in, uh, the people up there. We gathered a lot of people and I presented what you have done. Uh, and I mentioned also, of course, the interest of scientists from abroad. And uh, But we hadn't heard any new stories from Hestal, so I thought it was uh, gone. But after I finished the presentation, one of the inhabitants came up to me and said, it still goes on. Said it very quiet, though, to me. It still goes on. And, oh, I said, why? I, I hadn't heard about that. No, we we don't tell it to anyone now, he said, because we were so ridiculed the first time. We didn't want to do, be ridiculed again. Uh, but anyway, that was enough for me to decide to start the project again, start field work. But instead of gathering a lot of people going up there, I decided to make an automatic station with cameras and so on inside to automatically record uh, announced light phenomena. Uh, so, uh, was, was it still was it still analog equipment? Yeah, well, it started to get <laughs> more digital. We had computers. This was in uh, okay, that's good. Otherwise, it would be expensive. <laughs> yes, <laughs> all the tape. So, uh, so uh, my students started to build the station in 1994. In 1998. It was good enough to be put up in Hestown, mm. and it uh, still continues sending data onto internet. So everyone can go into their website, www.hestalen.org, and see the re latest results. Now it's only the, the uh, alarm camera. And still uh, interesting results. But since, anyway, you, since you mentioned it now, is it sending in real time? No, not at the moment. Instruments have gone on and off. <laughs> so uh, there are reasons. We had uh, some years, we had uh, three cameras sending real so people can be at home uh, looking through the eyes of the camera up there in real time. Yeah, I remember I've seen pictures uh, of you guys or your students or whoever, like in rain, you know, in, in bad weather, standing there. I was imagining people were physically positioned. I mean, this well, is in old days. Well, this is this is two different uh, things, you know. Well, yeah. first of all, we had made a station, uh, put it up there with different kind of instruments. Some uh, now... Some is working, some is not working, some are going up and down, uh, but the alarm camera is working. That was the, what we call a blue box. Hestan automatically station was uh, built into a blue container, which was uh, put up in the hillside in Hestan in 1998, connected to power and now internet, so it sent data. Uh, 
Another thing we have done is what we call science camp, which we started with in 2002. Mm. Uh, the main issue from the community, or, or the reason why you got money for this was that uh, there was a problem that very few young people in Norway, young students, wanted to study mathematics and physics. And, you know, our community, our everything is based on electricity, yeah. uh, communication, all is, you can say, technical. The whole society is technical everywhere. Mm. And if you don't get people who can handle this or can keep this equipment alive, you can imagine what would happen there. Uh, maybe we don't have any more power, or maybe radio, television, everything. Mm. So there was a big concern that there was too few students choosing the study subject, which could make them become a technician or to, to keep the society alive. Mm-hmm. Um, so any proposals for things who could involve or get the young students interested in this topic was a welcome. And we thought, well, bringing them up to Hestown, staying out in the, in the nighttime with instruments and uh, sleeping in tents in September, cold, <laughs> that could be very exciting for the students. Hmm. and show that uh, mathematics and physics is not an indoor thing. It's exciting. So we got money for bringing students out there. Mm -hmm. And it was a success in a way that, that, uh, you know, if you see it for them yourself, it makes something on you. Uh, Even if the sleeping uh, (laughs) is... It is not good and, and cold and everything, but it was exciting. It was really exciting. So this was, in a way, a success. And they managed to get some good pictures, good videos, yeah. uh, etc. So we con- we have continued with this nearly every year since uh, 2002. Very clever. And I would imagine that an aspiring scientist would want to be associated with groundbreaking. I mean, how many chances do they have to do something innovative in, in, in today's academia? So, uh, and <clears throat> what you say about people losing interest in hard science fields, well, yes, that's a problem not just for the Hastal project, it's a problem for the entire country. <laughs> yes. I mean, we can, we can survive by importing Indians, you know. <laughs> Yes, uh, that's uh, that's for, uh, that's for the reason why the the government gave us yeah. money for running this science camp. Mm. Uh, but, but I have to ask you, uh, based on some things you said, are you implying that your instruments, that the equipment, got disturbed, that there is interference from the phenomenon? Well, that will be just speculation, of course. Uh, um, it can be a natural explanation why people, why instruments doesn't... Uh... Okay, let me rephrase the question. Did uh, instruments dysfunction more than average, more than normal? Well, if I should pick up uh, out to one uh, happening, what's maybe our first field work in 1984, mm-hmm. uh, 
when we had uh, this uh, main station with a lot of instruments inside, we had to get power to it. So we got power from the nearest house and uh, a cable, electrical cable, was put on the ground to our field station, which was uh, some hundred meters away from this. And that that uh, power system was running our, our instruments and uh, Sometimes that power system failed. It uh, didn't work. And then afterwards it came back again. And we didn't know why it stopped. We did and the power went off now and sometimes. But after some days, I I, uh, thought, well, not thought, I I, uh, noticed that... uh, this power breakdown very often happened just close to a sighting, ah. just before the sighting. So in a way, we couldn't get the scientific data on that sighting. Luckily, it didn't happen on every sighting. We got uh, more than uh, 50 observations uh, of the Heston phenomena during that period. It didn't happen on everything, but on several. And I got the impression it happened just when we needed it most, when the when the phenomenon was coming. So, in a way, it works like an alarm. Yes, <laughs> but sadly, we wasn't prepared on that, so I didn't write down the time, exact mm. time for when the power went off. And uh, when they come back again, uh, sadly, so I couldn't, I cannot document. Uh, it was just my impression uh, there and then. Well, anyway, uh, my impression was so strong that the year after 1985, we wanted to find out if there was any connection with the phenomena. So we decided to have our first part of the field work with a lot of instruments present mm. and this, the second part with no instrument, no power, nothing, mm. just cameras mm. to see if there was any change in amount of sightings from those two periods. Sadly, it was only one good observation in 1985 and uh, of course that happened when we had no instruments but uh, (laughs) but uh, only one is absolutely too little to claim anything in that sense yeah too bad it you didn't do this a very uh, good idea but it should have been done during the flap i think Yes, absolutely. We absolutely uh, uh, had I been prepared on such things too. That mm. was not. Uh, I would. Uh, so if anyone is going to do fieldwork, uh, bringing uh, power and so on, they have to notice every small little things happening. Mm. Mm. Well, if it's interference with equipment, it, it doesn't imply anything else than that there are strong energies going on, right? So, well, uh, instruments. We are going into some data from from yeah. uh, the fieldwork now. Mm-hmm. On uh, we had also 
in period some feeling that you are out in a boat in the ocean. Something influences your head. So wow. even if you're standing out in the mountainside, yeah. uh, standing still, not in a boat, you feel as you are in the boat, waving back and forth in the waves. Wow. Uh, and many of those who were standing there had the same feeling. But, but wait uh, a minute, why, why haven't the, have, have the locals had the same feeling too? Uh, we haven't uh, asked about mm. that. You know, that. We noticed just what's happening right. Right. On, uh, during our people up there. Mm. And uh, we have studied what this could be, what could make us feel like that. And we have discussed with scientists from NASA about it, and they said that if the brain is influenced mm. by a, electromagnetic radiation with very low frequency, mm. uh, ultra low frequency. And it, if that is strong enough, it can influence your inner air. So you got such feeling. Yeah. Uh, we have later also found out that if you have infrasound, which is strong enough below the, the limit of what you can hear, but the intensity is so strong that so you you had it could also establish such feeling uh, on your ear. It influences your inner ear where your this waving feeling is sitting. Uh, but at that time we had no instruments who can detect low frequency uh, electromagnetic radiation or infrasound. So we we cannot say what it is. Are you familiar with Arthur Fierstenberg mm. and, and his book, The Invisible Rainbow? No, sir. Okay. Well, there's a lot of research um, uh, which doesn't get enough attention, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of research on how these things affect human bodies because of we live in a, like you say, we live in a digital age and an electrical age. And there's, it's not just like, like for example, you know the grænsevadi. Uh, what's that in English? The limit. The, yeah, the limit values that we operate with officially here in Norway or in different countries are only taking into consideration the strength. I I, I don't know the the professional jargon, but like the the let's say heating, warming, how warm stuff gets. They are not taking into account something which is now, once and for all, completely documented with solid evidence that also the pulsing has an effect, even if there is a, is a very weak heating. So there's many aspects of this that interferes with biology, yes. uh, which is not completely mapped or, or everybody doesn't know everything yet. Yes. But because the problem, I think, is that one field of science is not talking with another field of science. You have things compartmentalized. Yes. You need generalists to, you know, get these connections. And in a way, you guys stumble into, <laughs> you become like in a minefield of, because there's so many, I liked on your website, you had uh, the illustration uh, to educate people like uh, there's a dog. There's five different aspects how you can yes. perceive that dog, right? I, I believe they have a adage in English about the elephant, right? Yes. And in a way, that's what you're doing here. Yeah. You're, you're placed in a phenomenon we know nothing about and your approach will kind of influence also what you measure, what you discover. Yes, yes, yes.
All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the pay link on our webpage. Thanks. We have also measured some really strange happening, which I haven't mentioned. We used a laser, a very weak laser, mm -hmm. uh, because, well, and pointed towards uh, a flashing light. Uh, we didn't use any strong laser, so it wasn't dangerous. It's anyway uh, weak laser. The type of really? laser you play with cats, that kind of laser? No, uh, yes, uh, a laser which now is used for uh, pointing uh, devices. Yeah. Uh, at, you, know, you have a lecturer and use a laser pointing to the, your screen. Very weak, uh, much weaker in that one, red one. We pointed that to a flashing light. The reason why we did that test at all was that people had uh, said that uh, when uh, they use a strong uh, spotlight, for instance, from a car pointing mm. to this uh, light, it disappeared. So we, uh, instead of um, bringing a big spotlight, <laughs> which take a lot of power and so on, yeah. we used a smaller laser, which was much easier to handle. And it's uh, the, this, uh, the beam of light isn't so big and so on. So it's more, more easy to say you hit it or outside of it. Uh, but what happened? It changed the flashing frequency when we pointed the laser beam to, towards it and uh, was surprised. We would expect as it to disappear, which people told us it, and they had experience. No, it did change the flashing frequency. Uh, you mean they changed the frequency on the, on the laser? You know, uh, if you can imagine, it was a light, it wasn't stand steady, it was flashing yeah. on and on, ah. on, on, on. And the frequency become doubled when we pointed the laser. Wow. It. So some people may interpret that as communication. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely. And we took the laser down again and it went back to normal frequency hmm. flashing. And it pointed up again and it doubled again. Uh, and we, the time we we used on pointing the laser to it, and the time we used it down, was always changing. So it was um, it shouldn't be any um, any. We changed that. Uh, so we used, for instance, we pointed it to maybe ten seconds in one question, uh, and next next time we used five seconds pointing towards and so on. And down maybe 10 seconds and uh, up. Uh, and so we change the time we use the point the laser to it all the time. Or every time we, uh, we did that test, we did that test in nine different uh, happenings. Mm. And in eight of those nine, it changed the frequency, uh, doubled the frequency. And, and the strange thing, well, it was strange. It, it re, you can say it reacted on a weak, very weak laser beam. So if anyone wants to do such a test, 
don't uh, use a strong laser. Maybe people think, oh, using a strong laser is better. No, it was very, very weak. So, so weak that it doesn't happen in anything if you're pointing to people or whatever. Mm. Uh, but anyway, one week later, after we did that test, we saw, or three people who was present, uh, this uh, red spot on the ground moving around. If you can imagine, you're pointing this small laser beam to the ground and move it around around the feet, our feet. Mm-hmm. It was just looking like that. Uh, <laughs> so if you talk about communication, it's... Wait, wait a minute, you, you saw, uh, but but you didn't see the source of that? No. That's strange. Wow. It was uh, mostly cloudy, but uh, just above the station where this hap- was happening, it was uh, not cloud at all. It was a circle with uh, no, no clouds. Okay, since we're talking about the phenomena itself now, let's change gears now and discuss this. Uh, what, what you've observed through the years. We'll, we'll go into a phase of the show now where I'll ask you questions about that. And so, from what you just said now, it's very interesting that you can interact with the phenomena. Yeah, not many times. No, but it's proven to have happened at least once. And, and you know the old joke more. that, yeah, you know, the it just takes one, you know, one black sheep to prove that not all sheep are white. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, and it's interesting also that it's not steady. Uh, with that, I mean, like you say, yeah, it happened in eight of ten. You, one would expect, if you're talking about the same thing here, that you would get the same outcome. It makes it so much harder for you guys to map this scientifically when it changes its, uh, should I say, its attitude or its uh, behavior (laughs) all the time. Uh, But in itself, that's a very interesting data point. But you talked about the flap. So my first natural question about this is, have you, first of all, had there been any other intense free uh, number of sightings throughout these years and if the number of sightings changes from year to year or from season to season or i don't know the time span it does change but have you dated it and observed a pattern or is this also apparently chaotic no uh, well the high activity or the high number of observation which I mentioned up to 20 a week, the most uh, happened from late, uh, de- well, December 1981 to late 1983. And in, in 84, sorry, uh, because uh, we had our field work in 1984 in, the, in January, February, and uh, after that it turned less and less activity. And in 1985, we had only one during our field, four weeks of uh, observation. Um, And after that, we got very few. And now I got the impression it's roughly 20 observations a year now. And that's that's when you have 24-hour monitoring? No. Well, yes, that's true. But it's also combined with... uh, with the sightings people or mostly sightings people are coming with when you take into account uh, the the strange observation from the blue box, the camera is Mm. more. 
Mm. Uh, yeah, and if you take into account the number of sightings observed by young students during the science camp, oh, it's about 50. If you if you say that's uh, that's uh, is. Uh, uh, so the number is uh, from 20 to 50, though, a year. So that's not, that's not so much. No, not so much, although it's a small valley, so in, yeah, yeah. Yeah, much, much. But is, you, if you go up there to look it, look for yourself and you see it, you are uh, lucky. Yeah. <laughs> you are lucky. Or chosen. But but uh, is there so there's no data on periodicity like is there some weather conditions or some time in the year or in the month, you know? Do you have any data about that or it does well, it seem random? Well, uh, it in a way you can see it's random, but you know up there it's more dark in the winter time, so it's much easier to see a light when it's dark outside. So we have more observations when it's dark outside from the camera system. Yeah. Although uh, what started some years ago, many people go up there to take uh, pictures also in the summertime of the nature. And on uh, some, some happen that there some, some pictures. Uh, they have found some strange phenomena, some strange uh, form of lights. So it uh, seems to be uh, going on all the time, but uh, or not only uh, winter time. And but uh, if you think of the automatic camera from the station, uh, it's more in the winter time. Mm. But uh, that station doesn't take uh, everything, though it have one camera pointing in one direction covering a small air, small part of the oh, sky so right. you will not get everything because they, they are appearing at different places yes so and i have to tell the listeners uh, you know his international uh, listeners that the the reason he's emphasizing winter time is that in our, we are we are so far north that in the winter it's darkness, much more darkness. Uh, in the summer, we, we can have, I, I don't know in Hastal, but I guess it gets dark at around 11 o'clock or something in the summer. Well, in the middle of the summer, it's, uh, it's not completely dark in the summertime. Yeah. And, uh, and opposite at winter. Yes. So, uh, but I recommend if people want to go up there to see for themselves, I recommend from August to October, because in that period, there is normally no snow. So it's mm. possible to go out in the mountains to look at the, the stay up there. The good viewing places, it's possible to reach them. After October, it can be snowy, can come snow. And uh, that snow normally doesn't disappear before maybe late May or early June. Uh, and when it's snow in Hestown, it's very difficult to reach the different uh, location, yeah. look for the light by car, for instance, it's not possible. Uh, so then you have to use- Plus the snow acts as a reflector, right? Well, um, no, I was think, uh, thinking or talking about uh, when you should go there to yeah. Hestown. 
to yeah. see it for themselves. But I, I wonder, is the snow inhibiting or enhancing the phenomenon if if you see it while snow? No, we, we have no data on that. Okay. But uh, we have to say it's a beautiful nature. So so only for the nature experience, even if you don't see the light, you, you won't miss out. But that makes me wonder, Isn't has there been like a UFO tourism there? I would imagine maybe. We <laughs> yes, they have started uh, now what they call Visit Hestown, which you can contact. They have a website called visithestown.no. So if you want to go there, uh, you should contact them because they can help you with everything. And they can help you for sleeping, where to sleep. They can help you to guide you to different places. And they're, they're clever. Uh, so if you've never been to Hestown and want to go there, contact visithestown.org. They have also a, a sleeping place up there to, to, with the glass roof so you can stay oh. inside and look out in the, in, the, in the sky in the middle of the night through glass windows. And, and it's so removed, yeah, it's so removed from the big cities, right? That uh, when there's a clear sky, not cloudy, you can see all the stars, right? Yes, that's, yes, that's mm. right. That's so that right. must be beautiful. Yes. So I would recommend people to go up there. But that is not so many years ago they managed to do that. Um, in Well, this uh, Heston phenomena was uh, back from the 80s when there was... Uh, and people come up there at that time too <laughs> and believe that where is the hotel, yeah. where is the restaurants. <laughs> it's nothing like that. So... Well, it's good for the locals if they can get some some business of the, from this. Yes, that, that's good because there have been so much bad things. Uh, the inhabitants had to yeah. swallow, for instance, the ridiculing and everything. So if they manage to get something good out of it, uh, it's uh, great. Maybe I should also mention that uh, the blue box um, in uh, many years since I built it, uh, or my students built it, uh, put it up in 1998. The equipment inside was mainly supplied by our college, by university college where I'm working. Uh, so in fact, uh, the blue box was, we call it the blue box automatic station because it's inside the blue box. It was belonging to Eswell University College. But now I mentioned with the test on, they are very clever people. And I, uh, they own the blue box uh, now mm. with all equipment and everything. And they are interested in uh, keeping this upgraded, have it in top shape form, in top. Well, so far, you know, the university college was not interested in uh, having the latest, biggest equipment. But Visit uh, Town are interested. So now they are planning to rebuild or take out the old, the old equipment and bringing new stuff. And uh, I'm very glad, but of course, people should... Uh, we, they need support to help them to to get the funding needed to buy the good, a real good cameras, new good instruments and, and computers. It costs some money, 
And so uh, if anyone had the possibility to help there, they should know that their plan is to rebuild everything inside the blue box. There's internet connection, so the, the blue box will continue sending the data directly onto the internet so people can sit home and look at the, um, the data. Uh, we also want to get up the streaming. As I mentioned for you, we had some streaming some yeah. years ago. We had to, it was some security hole and so on. Mm. And now it's become very expensive. We hadn't afford to buy. So, so people should ship in if they're interested yes. in this, they should contribute. Yes. And all the data, if you, you have, we have a web, website, hestalen.org. And uh, if you go to the English uh, site, if you go to hestalen.org first, you can choose by Norwegian or English. If you go to English, uh, you have some, you can uh, click on to the, to the left, the blue list, <laughs> and then you have some place which I call sponsors. It's uh, if you go into that, you can go to under other very low down to the left. You come, you say, become a sponsor, mm. and if you click on that, you get all the bank account details and so on. Uh, I will soon uh, announce that our plan for rebuilding the, the station with new cameras and new instruments to get it running up and running again, professional. We have got uh, people who can do the job too, but we only need the support. Yeah. Can people pay with PayPal or with bank cards? Yes, we have IBAN numbers and a big shift numbers. So all the all the details. Uh, we don't have any any not yet PayPal, but uh, maybe we'll discuss that with them too. It's possible. To... It's pretty easy to set up something like that. Also, yep. uh, that people can just because if they have to bother with IBAN and many people fall off. But if you yes. have like swipe your credit card, just put in the numbers, bam. Yeah. That will help, I think, if you yeah. set up yeah. something like that. Yes, mm. we'll do that. Okay, uh, I have more questions about the phenomenon. But before we go back to the lights, just one little detour. I don't know, maybe it's a it's a dead end. But have you ever wondered or found out what the meaning of Hastal is etymological? No, <laughs> I haven't studied the name. Of course, if it's an old phenomenon, if it's a nature phenomenon, there's no reason it should have started now. So maybe maybe it could be connected to... I don't know what it means either. I mean, Dal means valley, obviously. Yes. But Hess, and Hess is a Germanic word. We, of course, we have like Rudolf Hess. <laughs> it's yes. a well-known word, but I haven't checked the meaning of it. It could be interesting. Often, if it's old nature phenomenons, especially, I don't know, all over the world, but in Norway, they often name stuff after nature, right? Yes. So it could be something that... Okay, but back to the phenomenon. Now, I wonder about the colors. Of course, in science, we know that colors are more than just something to be admired for their beauty. For example, the Doppler effect can actually tell us a lot about something. So I, I wonder, are these lights only white? Are they colorful? If they're colorful, is there any colors that are more prevalent than others? Is it like one light has the same color all the time or can they change color? Stuff like that I'm wondering about. Yes, you have all of those. Uh, wow. uh, I would say we have split uh, 
sightings in three different types. You have the flashing light, who last only a fraction of a second or up to maximum a couple of seconds mm. before it turn up. Uh, we call it the flashing light. These lights are normally white or blue, or white-blue in a way. And uh, they can move, can move very fast, because we got it on pictures, and it can stand still, a flashing light. So, so like but, pulsating? Yes. Mm. Uh, we first become aware of those when we got uh, light on the pictures we took when we didn't see any light when they took the picture. We Many times we take pictures out there to see if something comes into it. And uh, on this happening, we we suddenly discovered some light in these pictures, which we didn't see when we took the picture. And then we studied and become aware of this flashing, absolutely most of those. And I normally say, if you started to see the flashing coming, take pictures because uh, normally they go in, in, in the, when one flash start, it comes normally more flashes in a, a certain short period of time afterwards. Mm. Uh, they are so uh, short duration. So I am not sure if you saw a flash or not. Uh, normally, it's more easy to see it on a side view of your, your eyes because that is more sensitive for uh, small flashes, short duration flashes. Mm. Well, that's one type. The other type is the, the more yellow, mostly yellow with colors sometimes. Um, and it can change colors too, but uh, mostly the yellow with different shapes. Uh, and uh, and it can suddenly show up uh, flashing of other colors onto this uh, this light. If, if you man, we have pictures of this yellow light, and you can see when this is moving, it's long exposure time. So on the on the camera, you can on the picture itself, you can see a yellow uh, line moving. Mm. Sometimes it uh, flashing. Uh, and uh, sometimes you see a flash of some other colors uh, very close to it. Uh, so it cons consists of several colors too. But mostly it, it's yellow or yellowish. Uh, but uh, uh, maybe the strangest thing is the shape. It's not a always a circle or uh, ellipsal. Is they can have all other strange kind of shapes. Tri triangles? Yes, triangles. Squares? Uh, yes, absolutely. And cubes. I could mention that uh, what I'm describing now, we have the real pictures out on the website. Mm -hmm. So people can go into heston.org and look at the different uh, pictures. You can find the pictures both on uh, where I write about the phenomena and you have uh, pictures uh, there and you can go to the station and uh, get interesting pictures uh, from the station the different years. And in that uh, pictures from the station, you will also find some few pictures taken from ordinary people. Ah, so you, you receive contributions from the public. Yes, yes. Mm. And... Uh, 
the last place you find some observation data is uh, you're under the phenomena observation this year or observation previous years. Uh, and people have described what they see there. So it's uh, those three different locations on the website. Well, so what's I, the third type of light? The third type is uh, several lights together. Mm. Um, and there are they, these lights, spots of light, seems to be connected to something. So when uh, several lights, you can imagine, Mm-hmm. On, on the on the sky or uh, towards the the uh, hillside or wherever, mm-hmm. uh, when these are moving, they all they are moving all together, so as if they are connected to something, and this something has been seen sometimes when uh, this type of light hasn't been when it hasn't been completely dark outside. And they say it's normally connected to a dark object. Hmm. So you can have a dark object with several lights connected to it. Uh, so uh, that's... Now, the, now uh, we're talking uh, classical UFO uh, observation. Yeah, you can say so in a way. Uh, absolutely. Has this something, does that have a shape according uh, to... Yeah, well, those uh, shapes are more elliptical uh, types, or L- like a cigar. No, not not uh, not the light itself. Well, uh, <laughs> you have all different kinds. We have a couple of stories too, which uh, describe the phenomena as a glowing uh, cigar-shaped. Well, mm. uh, actually, they is describe it as a, something in metal in the middle, and outside this metal uh, thing, uh, cigar shaped, uh, big as a uh, truck. There's a, some kind of glowing light uh, outside, uh, around it. Mm. So that's uh, also one. Well, that's uh, that's a third one. Um, we have several of those too. Which would you say are most frequent and most rare? Most frequent is the flashing light. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they usually come before one of the other two? No, we haven't found any uh, correlation there. Huh. No. So, you know, they're separate. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We have also the fourth type, uh-huh. uh, which are not light, though. We have also some describing more um, object type. Uh, oh, really classical? Classical, yes. But, wow. it, but, but, that, but you have nothing of this on, on film or on other kind of measurements? Uh, yeah, well, uh, there is a picture which could, uh, which was taken in the daytime of uh, visitors up there taking pictures of the beautiful nature and uh, uh, when they study uh, the pictures afterwards, on one or two of the pictures, they've got something which looks strange. So that can be... Um, uh, but that's the only one which I've been taking pictures of. We have we have several which uh, describe uh, description by people. Uh, you know, people don't... At that time, that was mostly a uh, long time ago when people didn't 
walk with cameras <laughs> all yeah. the time. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, now we, people go have cameras and take pictures. And all the time, all over yes. the world. Yes. yes. And, and that's a good thing in this context. But a, a couple of more questions about the lights. You talk about the shape. What about the size? Have you any notion of... I mean, at least you can see something can be small compared to something that is big. I don't know if you have any way to measure the distance and therefore well, know the size. Well, uh, depending. A light in the nighttime is very difficult to yeah. measure because, uh, you know, it's depending on very much how strong it is. Uh, on one occasion, we measured, uh, uh, I think it was three or five meters in diameter. But uh, that is based on the picture and also in personal when they were looking at it. But uh, the exact exact size is very difficult to state because, you know, it's a, it's a light with a, in the background, black thing. Mm -hmm. Maybe the, the, we have a couple of stories from up there which could indicate some kind of, of uh, size. For instance, uh, the local inhabitants who saw a light up in where his friend have a cottage. So the first thing he thought of was that the cottage was burning. <laughs> so he went to the cottage to, to see if he could save something from the cottage, you know. This was late in the nighttime. Yeah. And uh, when he came to close enough to the cottage, he realized it wasn't the cottage who was burning. It was a light as big as a cottage, he, uh, which stood just beside the cottage. It was triangular. The sharp end down, and it was moving slowly down. When 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 it, when it, when it, when it touched the ground, it jumped up, and when it slowly went down again, and uh, when it touched the ground, it went up very fast, uh, triangular, as big as the cottage. The cottage was about ten meters wide, so uh, you can say that it was about 10 meters in the diameter. Mm. So we have some few stories indicating the sun. Uh, this, this indicates that some people have been on close proximity to the lights. Yes. Mm. Or when... No, no uh, like in some UFO reports, people can get damages or, or nature can be damaged, like heat, etc. Have you any kind of reports like this or measurements like this? No, not any report mm. telling about any heat at all. In a way, that's strange uh, because when we have made the optical spectrum analyzing, we got something indicating it can be a solid object, and that could be indicate heat. Black I mean, a radar uh, covers black. heat, doesn't it? Uh, well, not the radar we was using. Okay. But anyway, the black body radiation indicate heat. Yeah. But no, even those who have been close, for instance, the man who was standing 50 meters away from the cottage yeah. with this uh, big sized <laughs> shaped triangular shaped he didn't tell about any heat and when it touched the ground there was no heat marks hmm. not, nothing heat 
Uh, we have also on one occasion, uh, uh, not in Heston, but similar light, uh, touching the snow, making tracks in the snow, but the snow had Did not melted. Melt. It didn't melt. So it was not any heat at all. So weird. So well, weird. You, you talk about... Um, by the way, have you tried to measure radiation? Military must be interested in that for sure. Yes, but luckily we haven't got any radiation, <laughs> nuclear radiation. No, That's Al alpha, beta, gamma, no. no. Good for your health, man. You've probably been there most than anyone else. So. Yes, but maybe I should, uh, <laughs> should say the reason why we use that instrument was mainly because uh, we have heard from other places around the world that... Uh, it could be measured radiation from tracks from the ground. Mm. But we haven't uh, measured that uh, yet, even if we had the instruments. But I should point out that we haven't been close to it. The Geiger counter is far away. So it, it doesn't say that it's completely no radiation at all. Mm. But I could say that we are, we haven't had that instrument close enough to notice this and the increase in radiation. Mm. But you talk about movements. Is there any pattern in the movements, at least? No. <laughs> we, <laughs> we have all kind of different movement. Sometimes it can you can imagine like a spiral, uh, but uh, you have straight lines. You have uh, uh, when this uh, first object I was saying uh, seeing moved around, it was moving. We couldn't explain where it was moving. That's one of the some of the strange thing in finding a solution. It has so many different appearances, yeah. movement, speed, uh, color, and in a way... Well, what about sound? Very few. And there has been, I think, only a couple which I've heard of, compared with hundreds of observations. Mm -hmm. um, on one happening, uh, that was actually a more a standard flying... Uh, flying object, uh, flying saucer. Like, in fact, uh, when this uh, hunter was uh, surprised by this uh, flying saucer, he saw, he heard like a swimming sound as mm -hmm. you have by uh, some insects inside a, a box. You can hear this uh, swimming, uh, swimming sound. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he explained it like that. There have also been another like rumbling uh, and also people who can hear this hum sound humming sound which has been uh, written about uh, lately other places in Norway and other places around the world I think it's even a website on this hum sound Yeah, not everyone hear it uh, but there has been people up in Hestown who have uh, told that they could hear this hum sound on certain places in Hestal. But, but, but the one that is uh, reported around the world is rather loud and spooky. Yes. I think more people would hear... I think this is a more gentle sound. Yes. 
And so I, we don't know if that has anything to do with the phenomena at all. Right. And it's not much of it. I don't have many stories telling about that in from Heston. Yeah. Uh, but of course, this uh, hunter who saw this uh, uh, flying disc and is. This uh, zooming uh, sound. Mm-hmm. And we have also one, which I think is very interesting. Uh, local inhabitants up there, suddenly the, it was a vibrating, not the sound, but the, the house itself vibrated as you can imagine as it was in an in a earthquake. But it wasn't an earthquake because we had checked with the detection of earthquake. It wasn't any earthquake. So it's very extremely local. Lo- yes, extremely local. And the, the pictures on the wall was uh, vibrating and they could hear some sound. But generally, it's without any sound. Uh, I mentioned those two trees which tell about any sound at all now. That's all I have. Yeah. Well, you know what's the most special about the Hestal lights, if you compare it with anything else in the world, the most special property with this thing seems to me to be that it escapes any kind of category. Because yeah. no, that's the most mysterious of all, because we have, we have all these things you reported, we have from all over the world, but we don't have them all together in the same place. And it like when you try to, you know, snatch it from one angle, it escapes. <laughs> yes. And I, I think that's fascinating, the most fascinating thing in itself. Do you understand what I mean? Yes. Uh, and uh, that's one mystery too, because <clears throat> you have all this different thing, different appearances, different behavior, everything, as I mentioned for you. If you want to find a natural explanation it's not possible to go in one direction because, well, then you cover only some few of the observation or some of the observation, mm. not everyone. Mm. Uh, so, for instance, it's very difficult to, to think of this flashing light as the same as the, the yellow balls of light, which can last for hours. Uh, this flashing light and lasting a fraction of a second. And even more strange if you compare those with the, the observation done in the daylight, a UFO type. Uh, it's very hard to imagine that's the same thing. Uh, and you would expect uh, to find the explanation that maybe it's more, several explanations, uh, one on diff- all the different types of observation. But in the but, same place? That's, yes, that's the big question. Why does it happen in one small place? Small Norwegian Valley. But I must point out that uh, I've been to expedition both in Australia, Mexico, United States, and where I have seen similar light phenomena. It seems to much be much of the same thing. But you mean every everything in Hastel? Yes, also... for instance, the flashing lights. Mm-hmm. I was in Australia, blue flashing light that happened down there. Uh, I managed to take a picture of it because I uh, of that in Australia because I knew about Hestel 
And when you started to see flashing, it uh, normally happened more flashes in the same time, same period of time. So I took the pictures, took several pictures, and uh, I managed to get the blue flashes on that picture out in the outback Australia. So, yeah, but, but what you mean is that you've seen all, all the things in Hastal at different places, but not all of them at the same place, another place, right? Yeah. Well, I mentioned that uh, there are similar types of phenomena all over the world. Yeah. Not only in Hestal. Yeah. But about movement, what about these? You, you, you indicated that they could hover and stand still, right? Yes. And what, what about this dramatic um, 90 degree angle change? You know, uh, if it was physical, obviously it, it violates the G-forces. Do you have the, those kind of movements too? Yes, uh, that's true. We, we, uh, one clear uh, one uh, picture, you can see the, the, the person who took the picture said, when I took the picture, long exposure, 30 seconds, when I took the picture, it disappeared, he said. But on the picture, he managed to get the disappearance onto the camera. Mm. The camera was standing still on the tripod, of course, of all the pictures on the tripod. And uh, on the picture, you can see when it starts to move, it suddenly changed dramatically the direction, goes straight down, and suddenly straight up again and continue on the on the course so on this change sharp angles if it had had any mass at all mm. you wouldn't expect to manage to to get such a sharp angle but um, what about the speed the velocity could that also be super fast well uh, we managed to measure the speed with our radar. Yeah. The highest speed we measured with that radar was 30,000 kilometers an hour. Jesus Christ. Well, that's, that's much faster than any, any plane. And we could also notice the distance, of course. And can can you say that measurement in miles? Do you know it in miles? Well, uh, miles is... Uh, it's for American, uh, isn't it? Uh, yes, uh, must, <laughs> must uh, count kilometers, 1.30 thousand. Uh, could it be... Would it be oh maths <laughs> very fast? Yeah, yeah. Well, thirty thousand kilometers well, an hour. Uh, it's maybe twenty thousand. Could that be yeah, great? Yeah, it sounds it sounds approximately there. Yeah, twenty thousand uh, I have another question before we wind down. I have another question about uh, this phenomenon itself. When it appears and when it disappears, does it come from somewhere and go to somewhere? Like, for example, if it goes up and down, does it seem like it goes, it just goes endlessly up in the sky and into the heavens? Or does it just vanish like out of sight? Is that how it appears and disappears? Because that's a little confusing too. Yes, uh, it's maybe very difficult to say. They say something sometimes that it uh, disappeared very fast. And then it's gone. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's not always sure if it vanishes far away. <laughs> and they see it disappear, although moving 
away very fast, and then it disappeared. I say. So if they if it vanished or moved faster and faster and disappeared, it's mm. difficult to say. But we have stories though who um, can see this disappear slowly out in the air. It is not moving fast, moving slowly, and uh, it just first come to be visible. Uh, and then uh, it also become invisible as it is uh, something shows up mm. and then it uh, disappeared out in the blue sky and you know, it doesn't move very few though stories of such but there exist what, what about sign of if, for lack of a better word intelligence Does it so? Does it have any indication that any of these phenomena can have some kind of intention? I don't mean like, hey, we come in peace, but I mean like, does it seem like they know what they're doing, or does it just seem like uh, amoebas uh, floating about or insects? No, that will be just a speculation. Of course, speculation. Of course. Uh, we don't have anything which can prove or anything about. Uh, I'll give an example. Of what I mean: if you encounter something, if it's an animal, right? It can because it sees you, it can go away. Does it seem to acknowledge the presence of observers? Well, speculative, of course. Well, uh, not they are not giving us any sign of it, though. No, so there's no, well. I could interpret what you said uh, uh, about the laser as I mean, it can have many different explanations, but one possible explanation could be some kind of acknowledgement, and the and the radar on the on the floor too. So I was wondering if there's I don't know if you're even looking for that, but I think to rule out intelligence should be high on on your agenda, if you can even do such a thing. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Then you have to dis, uh, define what is intelligent. Yeah, yeah. So it's a very difficult question. You, you, you have a huge, you have a huge task. You need funding. You need. Do you have enough people? If you have enough funding, do you have enough people today that would involve themselves into? Yes, yeah. yes. Mm. There's so much interest among scientists now, which now dare to con con say they are interested. But of course, scientists need to get funding or money to, to do their job. But I read on the internet, in newspapers, regularly they say, oh, now the Hestal phenomena is solved. Oh, now we know what it is. Can you officially confirm that we still that it is still a mystery? That yeah, no yes, yes, it's still a mystery. Uh, what has been uh, used as... Uh, They say we know what it is. They don't know what it is. It's just just one thought, what one theory, one possibility. Mm. Uh, so in the newspaper, that uh, theory is uh, stated as a solution on what it is. Mm. That's not true. Mm. We have, for instance, we did measure. Based on the optical uh, properties, optical uh, spectrum analyzing, we had some indication of scandium, the element scandium, in the light, and uh, we wanted to 
tell that on a conference. We wanted people to attend to the conference. So we mm. say we will come up with a big data. It is big data, Scandium. In a, in a, uh, but <laughs> and they were, uh, the newspaper wrote that uh, now the solution has been found. <laughs> the just just that, because uh, you, you know something about the phenomena, they yes. think it's explained. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's not. That's yeah, not true. Typical. But um, uh, I was going to ask you if there's any, because it's taking place in Hestal, is there any special property? that we know about Hestal, and I guess... Yes, that's high... interesting, because what's the ground? How's the ground up there? So we have uh, had the geophysicists who have walked around in the Hestal Valley, done several measurements on the magnetic and electrical properties in, in the ground, and found the interesting thing. Uh, they found, uh, for instance, uh, places where high magnetic uh, spots was uh, activity high, very much uh, higher than normal. Uh, they have also, based on the the mapping, they found, said that there are places in the ground, the areas with high conductivity, as uh, cable, for instance, a big cover cable was dig down in the ground, mm. the high conductivity, electrical property conductivity mm-hmm. uh, places where you are. So, so there are some interesting geophysical properties in, in the valley. So we want to do more of those uh, mapping uh, of uh, the geophysics to see if that could lead to the solution. Although, yeah, yeah, but but an immediate problem is: are these properties causal or effect or an effect? Yes, or does it have anything to do at all? Yeah. Yes, and we have also some uh, measurement to the electric, the magnetical pulsations. Um, we uh, have measured the magnetical pulsation. Well, when the observation was done, or several observations was done during our first fieldwork, our more than more than fifty. Uh, 40% happened when there was a magnetical pulsation. So we have, we have some data, but we have some data now and then, but so far we don't have the data to explain it. I think you, I think you need to keep collecting for, for year after year after year, the more data we have. Yes. And I could, as I say, uh, we know it's power. But, but if, if you can't say that it is this or it is that, is there anything we can say that it is not? Because some will think this is what we in Norwegian call kulelyn. I don't know what the English word is. Ball lightning? Uh, yes, uh, that uh, I discussed this with ball lightning scientists. That was one of the first conferences I uh, was attending. Uh, where there was ball lightning scientist, and I brought from the topic: Could this be anything? Have anything to do with ball lightning? For me, it was uh, so much differences in the behavior of a ball lightning uh, compared with this one. So it couldn't have anything to do with each other. It was not the ball lightning. Okay. Is there any other thing you can rule out? Well, you can rule out uh, 
planets, uh, stars, and so on. Yeah, yeah. The well, basic uh, stuff. But what about these uh, these uh, attempts to explain it scientifically? I mean, one interesting thing that probably has something going for it is that you could be on the verge of discovering a new energy source. Yes. Could you talk a little about that? Yeah, that I think that's one of the big interests because uh, we know this light can last for hours. It can illuminate the ground beneath it. It must be some kind of power to uh, have this light <laughs> alive. And where does this power come from? What kind of power is it? So, if you find a solution on what it is, I think that uh, maybe, maybe this could lead us to a new new power source. Who knows? It would be wonderful if it was a power source that didn't radiate heat, no radiation. It seems very safe. It doesn't even melt snow. <laughs> no. It would be so much better than what we got today. Yes. Yeah. A final uh, question here, Project Ambla. Yes. Uh, the Italian uh, uh, astrophysicist uh, Teodorani, he indicated that based on Doppler uh, measurements that it could be as fast as 100,000 kilometers. Yes. And uh, he, he thinks it has geophysical causation. Now, what is this Project Ambla and what do you think of, of this? Yes, uh, that is... Uh project which we established together with an Italian, Italian scientist. Mm. Uh, we run it for, I think it's, so it's three or four years, uh, the fieldworks out in Hestown. So uh, uh, we cooperated with uh, the Institute for Radio Astronomy in, uh, in uh, just outside Bologna in Italy, and scientists from that uh, research establishment. And uh, when we had uh, we made an agreement with them to cooperate, and uh, we run this field works, which we called Embla. Mm. So that's that's the name of that. Okay. Uh, and uh, yes, uh, we have uh, many of those uh, reports. We have several reports out are all out on the on the net. Uh, for instance, you can you can they can go to heston.org website and look at the links to the different uh, location where the reports can be found. Mm. Okay. I'll have to say when, uh, you know, when we encourage people to take an interest in this, that I must point out that it's very special that you, you share all the data. Op it's like open source, right? You share everything with the public. You're not withholding something. You're not smuggling some data only to the military. <laughs> everything is in the open, right? Yes, that's correct. <clears throat> because I have never, ever thought of me collecting data, finding the solution or my team. Yeah. I'm getting the data and we will find the I th I would encourage scientists from all over the world to um, to get the data. I want to put the data out so they can use it. I want I actually want to find a solution. Uh, so if every scientist or every everyone have the data possible to get them free mm -hmm. and use that for finding a solution. That's wonderful. My main task has to 
I feel is to make it possible to get the data and present it to the people. Yeah, yeah, and that's a noble venture, and we have to support that. And uh, um, folks, uh, if you see this on the video platforms, we will attach pictures and, and video clips to it. If you only listen to the podcast. In in both the cases, actually, I really encourage you to to go and check out uh, Erling's website. It's Project Hastal is the is the name of the project, and that's also the name of the website, right? Project Hastal dot no, is that it? Yes. No, the website is www with two s's mm-hmm. dot org. Okay. That's the website. So uh, there they find uh, the reports, the pictures, uh, pic- everything on what Project Hestown has done during the years. Uh, so they can figure out more on by visiting that website. Uh, I could also mention that uh, there have been made several documentaries, and I would recommend uh, the portal Hestown Portalen. Well, the documentary movie about one hour, close to one hour, is called uh, Portalen. Uh, and if you search on internet and write Portalen and Hestown together, you will find it. Hmm. I would recommend uh, that's a good history or a good uh, documentary of the, of the happening. Yeah, interesting name. Uh, yeah, because some people, uh, that reminds me that some people think it's a portal, like an yes. interdimensional portal. If, if we're going down yes. the rabbit hole, we should also ne- mention the conspiracy theory that it's secret experiment with exotic technology, for example, NATO or something like that. But uh, do we have any way to rule out that uh, option? At least, right. at least it doesn't seem like the Norwegian military is in on it because they are helping you. <laughs> no, I, for me, this idea seems so <laughs> not. I don't believe at all in such. Not plausible. So I will not uh, even bother using. But my if mind. if you had a gun to your head and you should tell, and this is speculation, just your feeling, what would you think would be the most likely explanation for what it's worth? Well, I must say that uh, it can. One of the biggest difficulties in finding one solution is the all the different explanations, all the different measurements, data pointing in different directions. So uh, I think we must think outside the box. Yeah. It's completely new. We must uh, not um, stick to old uh, happenings. I, 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 not yet in a position to indicate uh, or tell what it is. I, I think it's more. I'm more interested in getting the data, data yeah. so it any possibility can be based on the data. Yeah. Yeah, amen to that. But um, I, I would say that it's important to, uh, you know, if the data can indicate stuff. For example, you, you do know that plasma is involved, right? That's positive, well, right? Some theories uh, indicate uh, plasma, absolutely. Cold okay. plasma, though. Yeah. Plastic plasma, 
but uh, some of the sightings could maybe be explained by that. Well, well, does it really explain anything? It just says that the, the nature of it, parts of it, is plasma. But does it really explain anything? <laughs> no, it doesn't explain everything. No. Could maybe indicate some part of it. No, yeah. I'm searching for one answer. So we can change the Heston phenomena to the Heston phenomenon. Yeah. You know, I write phenomena Good point. because it can be several solutions. But uh, I believe there must be something in the background, something because it's happening in the same place, some connection. Yeah. Yeah. But no, no, not one size fits all per today. That's for sure. Not yet. No. Well, I wish you good luck uh, with the project further. You, you're gonna? Are, are you retired or something? Are, or, or, are, well, are you going to stay with this, or what's going on with you? I'm uh, from my. I'm teaching at the university college. I'm uh, 67 now. I could have quit. I could have pension, so I could work full time on this one. But uh, I will never, ever stop working with this. Bravo, bravo! Great, great to hear. Do you think we covered uh, most of it, or is there anything we didn't touch that you want to mention now at the end? Oh, I think uh, we have covered uh, most uh, most of it, yes. Okay. Uh, yes. Super. It was an absolute pleasure conversing with you, Erling. Thank you. Thank you very much for being uh, your guest. <laughs> yes. Okay, brilliant. Da har vi det. Yes. And thanks again to Erling Strand for coming on and helping us understand this phenomena. And yes, I do go with the rural with UAP because I'm not one of those who is clinging to the old UFO term, which I never liked anyway. I I, I really don't understand why people are now angry at <laughs> at the, at introducing a new term. When you see what's happened to the old term, the old term, by the way, was hijacked by CIA in a PSYOP uh, project. It's proven now. You know, why do when people hear UFOs, what, what do they think? They automatically think aliens, ET, uh, they think spaceship formed, obviously, as a flying, as a disc, a saucer. And that was never the meaning of the world. Although, of course, that word could contain anything like that also notwithstanding all the cooks who flaunt it and and wallow in it. I mean, come on. Yes, we should have an open, inquiring mind. But I don't know about you, but I don't want to associate with those faith-based agenda pushers. You know, sects and cults and uh, clairvoyants and all sorts of people who have contributed to polluting the term Although, obviously, the powers that be has deliberately done so too. But for them, they are useful idiots. You know, all these 70 years when they didn't want to let the subject be acknowledged or clean for the public. But, of course, a critical mass was unavoidable. And today, here we are. It is what it is. And we're still not close to a real answer. In fact, there's no satisfaction in having it recognized, other than that we get a little less noise now from the naysayers, the debunkers, the 
ridiculers. Now we can have, an, for the first time, an adult exchange about it. And I believe Erling's and Project Hasidol's contribution to exactly that is paramount. And so when UAP has been launched as a clean version of the same thing, I mean, what is in a name? A rose by any other name would smell just as suspicious. And I tell you, for me, it's great that we finally has. I've never been one of those who have been screaming for disclosure or to get this subject matter publicly recognized. Because I, honestly, I didn't think it would happen. <laughs> but then it, it has happened. And uh, in a very sneaky and kind of gradual way, although... I mean, know the whole story. I mean, there's different elements to it. I've had Peter Lavender on uh, in one very major part of that. Whether you think that was some kind of up or not. And here we are. It's clean. Mainstreamers talk about it. Everybody recognizes it. It doesn't mean everybody agrees what it is. Now the big dichotomy seems to be spaceships versus, like, like locally produced spaceship, aka the classified space program versus, yeah, visitors from other planets. And yet, this dichotomy may also be a decoy. Coming from me, who is on the record of being a proponent of the fact that there is such a thing as a classified space program, although it's starting to get white now with the American U.S. Space Force. But what I'm saying here is that this phenomena, like Erling himself said in the show today, may not be so simple that you can nail it down to one thing. And uh, when, uh, on the one hand, you may have uh, spaceships or other kind of uh, machines originating from Earth and humans, as well as not originating from neither humans nor Earth, at the same time there's room for Many, many other aspects here, whether we're talking movements in time or interdimensions or simply spiritual, so-called spiritual, although, you know, metaphysics could probably cover all this. Indeed, uh, we may have natural phenomenons that are not covered, like in other frequencies. Indeed, there may be life forms in these frequencies. Look, this is a huge topic. It's just like, reminds me of the word uh, reincarnation. People get one simple idea in their head when they hear it. And like we've argued in this show, there may be 20 different versions of that which are completely uh, uncompatible with each other. And the same you have here. And so phenomena, I love that word because that's what it is. And it doesn't smear it with any particular bias or belief. Or Look, I don't mind people having a belief, but please don't pollute the objective data with your own belief. And I won't do the same to you so that you, when you study the data, you are free to make up your own mind based on clean data, just like I am. And then that may go into my belief, uh, confirm it or, or alter it or reject it, whatever. And the same for you. But this is how we have to go about it. People who think they know everything and then imposing that upon everything around them is a sickness in this world today, whether we're talking politics or health or spirituality indeed everything to do with paradigms and and this show you know the slogan is paradigm expansion and a prerequisite to manage to do that is to keep suspension 
of strong emotional attachments to ideas as well as not feeling ownership to or identify with any particular model in your paradigm. If you do that, you're keeping yourself in your own prison. And this is probably what I am most impressed with from Erling's work and Project Hastal is that they have managed to keep it on that level for so long keeping their egos out of it, keeping their belief systems out of it. Because Erling isn't like a debunker skeptic. He can't be because of his experiences, which we didn't go very much into. But any every work he does is possible to be shared with anyone, including those knee-jerk faith-based uh, debunkers, because it's clean data. That's what we need. We need communication of objective stuff so that we are free to be subjective in our meeting with it. You know, I'm reminded of uh, Dr. Jack Vallée's brilliant commentary on this. For example, he said, We are dealing with a yet unrecognized level of consciousness, independent of man but closely linked to the Earth. I do not believe anymore that UFOs are simply the spacecraft of some race of extraterrestrial visitors. This notion is too simplistic to explain their appearance, the frequency of their manifestations through recorded history, and the structure of the information exchanged with them during contact. And by the way, if you check out my show called... Pentagon's Biggest Secret with Nick Cook, you'll hear an excellent excerpt at the end in my post-commentary about this exact thing, where where Dr. Jack Vallée goes into scientific evidence for why third-degree experiences are rigged, which is why he also said human beings are under the control of a strange force that bends them in absurd ways, forcing them to play a role in a bizarre game of deception. And if you doubt for a second that this is worthy of scrutiny, let me quote the astronomer Professor Joseph Allen Hynek. In fact, I'll do better than quote what he thought about Hastal after he actually visited it. I'll let you hear it from his own mouth. Well, I'm impressed by two things. One is the dedication of the people here that are doing this tremendously fine work. And I'm impressed with Hestalen itself, because Hestalen is really a UFO laboratory. It's a place where things are happening and where things can be studied. And I will look forward very much to hearing everything that happens here. And I want you to keep in close touch with me in the States. And it's been a very great pleasure being here. I was saying that Heston is a laboratory, and of course a laboratory needs equipment and things of that sort. And so I would say, without fear of exaggeration, Heston has had the best equipment and the best period of operation and observation of the UFO phenomenon any place in the world. There's not been this amount of equipment brought to bear on that, and that is the important thing, having the, the uh, magnetometers, the radars, the uh, various cameras, and then having staying here for a length of time to do all that. Oh, and there's nothing that compares Heston. This is by far the best, and that's why I came here. <laughs> this could be a big chance. Very big Whether it is in paranormal or from out of space, or whether it is a natural phenomenon, none of them, whatever it turns out to be, it's terribly important. I'd, I'd like to add, just before leaving, that I think it should... Uh, go almost without saying, but I'll say it anyway, that I would certainly not have come all the way from Arizona to Norway uh, if I didn't think it was very, very important. And please keep up the good work. 
Any culture will tend to interpret any new phenomenon in terms of its own technology. Had this all occurred in the uh, Middle Ages, it would have been given a totally different interpretation, it would have been a religious interpretation. We've entered the space age, therefore it is very logical for a new phenomenon of this sort to be interpreted in, the, in terms of our own advanced technology. Um, it's also complicated by the fact that astronomy has arrived at the point, we know enough now about the evolution of stars, to make it extremely likely that uh, there are many other intelligences in the universe. But there, I think we have to follow Arthur C. Clarke in pointing out that we take perhaps a much too narrow view of what intelligence in, light in, in the universe may be. We live on a water planet. It's very logical, therefore, that our, well, our bodies are mostly water. It could be that our consciousness expresses itself through protoplasm and through our particular chemistry. There are bits of information today indicating that, now for instance, George Wald at Harvard feels that consciousness is the most important factor and that consciousness can exist in many forms. We are one of those forms. So, hey, as somebody said, the whole question of this trying to communicate with life elsewhere is like the not yet born talking to the long since dead because it takes so long for anything to get. Furthermore, an advanced civilization might regard radio as we regard jungle drums or smoke signals. They may long since have passed the radio stage of, of communication. But still, I think it's important that this program continue because it, it is, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's an adventure and it should be done. Mm -hmm. And it would be philosophically important to find out that there is some intelligence elsewhere. So, my own philosophical feeling about the UFO phenomenon is that when all is said and done, it represents some form of intelligence. But whether that intelligence is from great distances away, or whether it is perhaps much closer to us in a parallel reality or in another dimension, or whether it is in some strange way a product of our own intelligence, our own psyche, I don't know. This is the, this is the research problem. That it's in, that it seems to be programmed, that it seems to have an intelligence of its own, I think is unmistakable. If anyone who studies the subject just sees that. But the, we must not jump to the conclusion that because it has an intelligence of its own, it is necessarily visitors from outer space. It may be in some strange way connected with that intelligence, if that intelligence can in some way project itself down here. We'll give the last word to Dr. Hynek. Thanks for listening and for all your support, which is not going by unnoticed. As ever, I've been your host, Al. Broadcasting from the mysterious north. And know that, yes, the truth is out there, but it also lies within. Be seeing you. Seeing you.
who is number one.